Well, good morning, church. At the beginning of the biography, Becoming Elizabeth Elliot, Joni Erickson Tata writes of her sister in Christ the following words. We long to see a follower of Christ square off against sin and stand firm against the winds of adversity, one whose iron-clad character cannot be dismantled. We want to see someone in whom living for Christ and dying for him is indistinguishable. Isn't that a great phrase? We want to see someone living for Christ who living for Christ and dying for Christ is indistinguishable. Now, for some of us uh, who were here last Sunday night, we heard uh, the speaker from Open Doors, Mike Burrows, talk about some of our brothers and sisters uh, who are in the persecuted church around the world who are doing just that. Their life for Christ is indistinguishable from dying for Christ. Mike also reminded us of Joshua and Caleb after their returning from scouting up into the promised land and coming back and when all the other scouts said no the giants are too big we can't go up there Joshua and Caleb said no no we must go up and take the promised lands and the word of God speaks of Caleb living by a different spirit living by a different spirit what is it that sets the Elizabeth Elliots, the Joni Erickson Tartars, the Joshuas and the Calebs apart? What is it that sets them apart as people who living for Christ is indistinguishable from dying for Christ? Well, this morning that's what we're going to discover. We're going to discover that living by a different spirit, what it requires as we remember Pentecost and as we encounter God and his word afresh. So let's pause for prayer, shall we? Heavenly Father, as we gather this morning on this day of Pentecost, we thank you for your words. We thank you for the gift of your spirit. And we pray now that by your grace, by your favor, you would speak to us that we might live for your glory. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you've got a Bible and uh, you haven't already, please can I encourage you to turn with me to Acts chapter 2. And I'm reading from verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like a blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. And they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated them, separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, in the previous chapter in Luke, he records for us how Jesus has appeared to the apostles over a period of 40 days after the resurrection. And then he gives them this specific instruction. He says, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about, for John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And here in chapter 2, those few days have come. That day has come. It's Pentecost. They're in Jerusalem, which is the festival that takes place in Israel in the summer around this time, either in May or June, 50 days after the Passover. Pentecost, of course, 
literally meaning the 50th day. And all Jewish males were expected to be present at this festival. They were expected to travel to Jerusalem to celebrate the festival. And hence we hear of the crowds that Luke records in chapter 2. Sometimes this festival was called the Festival of Weeks or the First Fruits because it's really a harvest festival. And a, the people were to bring a sheaf of the first grain harvest. They would bring it to the priest and it would be offered to God as a wave offering alongside a sacrificed lamb. We can read about this in Leviticus 23. So what unfolds here in Luke 2 has profound implication for God's plan of salvation. In God's perfect symmetry, he restores what has been lost in Genesis. He regathers what has been scattered in Genesis 11, and he fills, fulfills what is prescribed in Leviticus 23. As he once again pours out the breath of life on humanity, and here, as we've already heard, a sound like a violent wind is blowing across the disciples. And they see what seems to be like tongues of fire that separates and then lands on each of the disciples gathered there. And all of them are filled with the Holy Spirit. They began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enables them. And Luke makes it clear that these tongues that they hear are natural languages that can be interpreted by many, many people from different nations. And so in verse 5, we read this. Now, there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. And when they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our own native language? So all these different nations are gathered and they are hearing their own languages. And they are utterly amazed, Luke says. They are bewildered, Luke says. We need to distinguish what's being described here from what Paul describes in 1 Corinthians where he speaks also about the speaking of tongues, a heavenly language. Alongside that passage, he talks about the gifts alongside them the gifts of faith, of prophecy, of healing, and so on. Here in Acts 2, the languages are known languages, and the visitors present are bewildered. So what's going on? What's going on this, in this day of Pentecost? I like the fact that we're currently journeying through Genesis, and as Carol's mentioned, we're taking a pause to celebrate the day of Pentecost. Because I think to fully understand what's going on here in Acts 2, we really have to have some working understanding of what's gone before in Genesis, what's been lost in Genesis 3. And significantly, although we're not yet there, in Genesis 11, sometimes referred to as the Tower of Babel. Genesis 11 begins with the following. Now, the whole world had one language and a common speech. And then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language, they've begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down 
and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. In Genesis 11, humanity in its hubris and its pride is making a tower, making a name for itself, the text says. An ancient Burj Khalifa. And God would have none of this, so he scatters them and significantly he confuses them and confuses their language. Acts is the parallel action of God in regathering the people. And while there is bewilderment and while there is amazement, God is bringing understanding again to the nations. A wonderful symmetry in Scripture is taking place. And so we see in verse 9 and following all these different groups of people, the Parthians, the Medes, the Elamites, the Mesopotamians, Judeans, Cappadocians, and on and on, people from all over the known world have gathered and they're hearing their language and they can hear it and understand it, even though it's spoken by these Galileans, bewildered, perplexed, what's going on? But some of them begin to mock the disciples. In verse 13, some, however, made fun of them and said, they've had too much wine. And then Peter, full of the Holy Spirit, stands up and he preaches the first sermon of the fledgling church. And so he says the following, Peter stood up with the 11, raised his voice and addressed the crowd, fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what is spoken of by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy your young men will see visions, your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. The context of where this is taking place is on the steps of the Jerusalem temple leading up to Jerusalem. I had the privilege in 2018 of gathering with a few thousand Anglicans, 2,000 Anglicans, and at the end of the week, we gathered there and we saw, we gathered to worship exactly where this proclamation is taking place. Peter makes this declaration and he quotes from the prophet Joel. He says, in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy your old men will see vision, your young men will see visions, your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. These days, these last days have emerged, Peter is saying. What you're seeing taking place, Peter is saying to the crowd, this is the fulfillment of the prophecy of John. The last days have begun. My spirit is being poured out on all people, not just Israel, not just the men on, of Israel, but on Jew and Gentile, on women, on men, and they are prophesying. They are proclaiming the very word of God's. This is the fulfillment of Joel, Peter says. Why is Peter picking up from the prophet Joel? Why not one of the major prophets? Why not Isaiah? Why not Jeremiah? Why does he take them specifically to Joel? Well, I want to spend a moment or two and go back to Joel and to help explore that question. Joel begins in his prophecy in the book, 
in verse 1, he says, has anything like this ever happened in your days? Has anything ever happened like this in your days? Tell it to your children and let your children tell it to their children. What's he referring to? Well, he's referring to a plague of locusts. And he goes on to describe the plague of locusts and how terrible that plague will be. What the locust swarm has left, the great locusts have eaten. What the great locusts have left, the young locusts have eaten. In other words, Israel and Judah are destroyed by this plague of locusts. And for an agrarian nation, the plague of locusts literally means death to them. And so as we go through the prophecy of Joel, we learn that the fields are ruined The vines are dried up. Surely the people's joy is withered away. They are in dire straits. And so Joel urges the priests. He says, call a fast, put on sackcloth, you priests, and mourn. Wail all who minister before the altar. Declare a holy fast. Summon the elders and cry out to the Lord your God. In other words, it's a call to prayer. God urges the priests to call the people to prayer because of this plague of locusts that is literally destroying their nation. They have this appearance of horses. Such is the tragedy that's going on in the lands. At the sight of them, nations are in anguish. They charge like warriors. They scale walls like soldiers. These are the locusts that Joel is talking about. And then, partway through chapter 2, there is this very, very sobering word that says that at the head of the army is the Lord. The Lord thunders at the head of his army. His forces are beyond number. In other words, it is the Lord who has brought this plague upon the people. And so Joel says, even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord, your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. Because of what's going on, Joel says, you've got to turn back. You've got to turn back. Rend your heart, not your garments. And then Joel says in chapter 2, I'll repay the years that the locusts have eaten. And then chapter 2, verse 28, he says these significant words that we're reflecting on. And afterwards, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. I will show wonders in the heavens of the earth, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness, the moon to blood before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there will be deliverance as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. And Peter stands up on the day of Pentecost and he says this prophecy that you know from the prophet of Joel is now being fulfilled. This is what you see, the Spirit of God being poured out among you. He goes on to describe to the Israelites listening there. He said to them, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did amongst you through him. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross, but God raised him from the dead. 
Peter goes on to describe how David knew this would take place. He knew that the Messiah was coming and he would overcome death. And as the listeners listened to Peter, something in their soul begins to change. As Peter articulates the gospel of Jesus Christ, his death and his resurrection, in verse 32, he says, God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it, exalted at the right hand of God. He has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, has poured out what you now see and hear, for David did not ascend to heaven. Therefore, let all of Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. And the text says they are cut to the heart. Anointed by the Spirit of God, Peter proclaims the gospel of Jesus Christ, his death and his resurrection, and he says we are all witnesses of it, and the people listening are cut to the heart. And they say, what shall we do? Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter replies, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the promises for you and your children, for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. And the outworking of that proclamation as the people turn in faith, in repentant faith, is that 3,000 people are added to the church that day. What a move of God's. What a move of God's. Down through the life of the church, from that first day on and down through the life of the church till this day, God continues to sovereignly move on his church, awakening us from our slumber, engaging us in mission, establishing and extending his kingdom. Some of my prayers over the last months have been focused on that call to return to the Lord's from the prophecy of Joel. Return to the Lord with all your heart. Rend your heart, not your garments. My invitation to the church in Dunedin to gather together in united prayer on a monthly prayer meeting is around this. Now, while the first Pentecost recorded here in Acts 2 is unique in its character and its birthing of the early church, we see aspects of God's sovereign hand being outworked down through the ages in these very texts. Tim Keller makes a distinction when describing revivals. He talks about the frontier revivals, which was basically an evangelistic mission uh, in the 19th century. He talks about Pentecostal revivals with the extraordinary manifestation of the Holy Spirit, gifts of tongues and healings and so on. And then he goes on to talk about biblical revival. And by that he describes and defines biblical revival as the intensification of the ordinary working of the Holy Spirit. The intensification of the ordinary working of the Holy Spirit. What does he mean by that? Well, Pentecost was unique. But as I've already said, a number of aspects that are described in this text are evident in God's sovereign move in reviving his church down through the ages. Let me describe five of those aspects of the work of the Holy Spirit, consistent with every move of God's spirits. The first is 
a conviction of sin. In verse 37 of chapter 2, we learn that the people listening were cut to the hearts. They were convicted that they were responsible for putting Jesus on the cross, and they cried out, what must we do? A conviction of sin is the first aspect that we see in any move of God's spirits. And then we see repentant faith being described. Peter replied, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Whether it's the great awakening of the 18th century, whether it's the Azuzu Street revival, the Welsh revivals, the Hebridean revivals, this repentant faith has always been followed on from the conviction of sin. Thirdly, we see an assurance of faith. Peter declares to them, this promise, this promise is for you and for your children. The promise is for you. You can be assured of your salvation. The fourth aspect we can learn here is sanctification growth. We didn't read the passage, but at the end of the chapter, in chapter 2, we read of the disciples' devotion to the apostles' teaching, to the devotion of breaking of bread, to the devotion of prayer, the growing in sanctification. Some of you may well be aware that Tim Keller last year in May was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. He was recently asked, how has this shaped his journey? With the threat of pending death, how has this shaped his journey with the Lord's? And he said that two words have come to him, focus and sanctification. He said, it's nothing like having a death sentence hanging over you to focus your life. How is it that I'm living my life? How am I going to spend my life? If you knew that you weren't going to be here in seven days' time, how would you want to invest this coming week? Focus has been one of the words that Keller has been guided by. The other is sanctification. He said, living with the prospect of death, the desire to grow in his sanctification is ever deeper and ever more real. And he believes the Lord would say to him, you are not holy enough for what I have for you. And so this journey of sanctification. So conviction of sin, repentant faith, assurance of salvation, sanctification growth, and fifthly and finally, perhaps most importantly, the move of the Spirit that we see is the witness to the Lord Jesus. In Acts chapter 1 verse 8, Jesus said the following to his disciples, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Last Sunday night, we heard a number of stories of brothers and sisters who are persecuted for their faith, witnesses. And one story has stuck in my mind over the last week. It was the story of a prisoner, a Chinese prisoner, who went into, was arrested and went into a Chinese prison, and he was sentenced to 22 years in prison. When he went into the prison, the guard said to him, you don't need to stay. All you need to do is deny your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, sign on this document that I no longer believe in Christ, and you can turn around and you can walk out of this prison. And he did. He signed the document, said, I no longer believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, signed the document, he turned around and started to walk out. He went out the first door, 
He went out the second door and then something began to tug in his heart. And as he got to the last door and he could see freedom outside that door, as Mike records it, he was prompted by the Spirit of God and he turned around and he went back to the guard and he grabbed the document that he had signed and he screwed it up. He said, I will not deny my faith. Jesus Christ is Lord of my life and do with me what you will. Because of that decision, that prisoner ended up staying in that prison for 22 years because he was not going to compromise his faith. Jesus said, wait for the gift of my father promised. Be baptized in the Holy Spirit. What does it mean to be baptized in the Holy Spirit? In a moment, I'm going to pray for God to reveal himself to you in power. Let me say the primary ministry of the Spirit of God is not to bestow his gifts upon you as important as those gifts are. Let me say to you this morning, the primary ministry of the Holy Spirit is not to bestow his fruits upon you in his life as important as those fruits are. The primary ministry of the Holy Spirit is to restore the life of the Lord Jesus Christ that was lost, to restore eternal life to you. The primary work of God's Spirit in any man, woman, boy, girl who is willing to return to the Lord with their heart and say, thank you, God, is to restore the life that is lost. This grace is available to you this morning on Pentecost Sunday. This gift of life is available to you this morning on Pentecost morning. What shall we do? What shall we do? That was the question that was asked on that first Pentecost Sunday. That's the question we must ask this morning. What should we do? And Peter's response was, repent and be baptized, every one of you, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Let's bow our heads and our hearts in prayer. Father, as we gather in your name this morning on this Pentecost Sunday, as we reflect on the prophecy of Joel, as we reflect on the years that were lost through the locust all those years ago, and as we reflect on the age that we find ourselves in now, as plagues sweep across our globe, as Jerusalem and Israel comes under siege, and as the persecution of our brothers and sisters around the globe intensifies, we know that we are living in the last days. And so we look to you, Jesus, our Messiah, the crucified and the risen one. We look to you. We rend our hearts. We return to you with all our hearts. And Lord, we would ask, I would ask even now, that you in your grace and in your mercy would pour out your spirit on your church afresh, that you would restore the life to us that was lost, that you would awaken us from our slumber, you would awaken us from our apathy, that you would embolden us to be your witnesses in Dunedin, in New Zealand, until the ends of the earth. And so we pray, come Holy Spirit, minister your favor, restore the life that was lost, this we ask in Jesus' name.